You may not remember <clears throat> the name Lee Iacocca, but he was one of the most famous businessmen of the 20th century. He led Chrysler back from the edge of irrelevance and extinction, and for a while he was Steve Jobs, Elon Musk-level famous. One evening he was having dinner, and a slightly less successful, less famous businessman bumped into Iacocca, and he had an idea. Mr. Iacocca, he said, what an honor to meet you. My name is Jack, and I'm having a business dinner with some of my colleagues over at that corner table. Now it would really impress my friends if you would wait a few moments and then come over and say, hi, Jack, like you know me. Well, Iacocca good-naturedly agreed, and a, a few minutes later, he went over to the table and he said, hey, Jack, how are you? And Jack looked up from his food and said, not now, Lee, we're busy. Now, I've come across this story multiple times through the years, and I've never been able to find a source. So maybe it's apocryphal, or maybe Iacocca was in on the joke. But don't we understand the desire to look just a little bit more powerful, a little bit more important than we really are, or to try and justify our already elevated sense of self? The Catholic writer Richard John Newhouse says, if you were half as important as you think you are, you would be twice as important as you actually are. The collision between the tenets and God is a conflict of pride. It's a conflict of power. It's a conflict of authority, of questioning the ownership of the very world itself. Verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders ask Jesus. Now, by the way, these are the constituent parts of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious aristocracy that would soon collude with Pilate to have Jesus murdered. And so it's no accident that Mark is telling us exactly who is questioning Jesus authority to set up their ultimate challenge to his authority in the form of a Roman cross. Now, the cross deals with sin. But as we say a lot around here, sin properly defined isn't just moral misbehavior. It's a rejection of God's rule and his authority. Sin, in other words, is a tenant acting like an owner. Christopher Lash, I quoted him in the front of the bulletin, says the social expectations that stimulate a child's appetite for new toys appeal to the desire for ownership and appropriation. The appeal of toys comes to lie not in their use, but in their status as possessions. When this fundamental desire for ownership, for autonomy from third-party rule is challenged. We, re and we react. We, we act, react with irritation. We react with self-justification. We react with gossip, with defensiveness. And sometimes we react even violently. In the parable that we read, one of only two in the entire book of Mark, the tenants beat up many of those messengers, those servants that come on behalf of the owner, 
And then later they, they kill the son. They certainly react violently. And this is what the Sanhedrin literally does to Jesus because he threatens their truth, their interpretation, their corner on the market on religion, their authority. But the gospel tells us, not just in this parable, but over and over, that we are tenants and not owners. But the problem is that the nature of the human heart tells us that we are owners rather than tenants. We'd rather live by the illusion of independence and self-sufficiency. So when the messengers, when the servants from God come into our lives, they often get sidelined, extinguished, beat up, or even murdered. God's servants come to tell us that we are not owners, but that our true condition is that of creation, one of dependency, one of contingency. These messengers can take on various shapes and forms. It can be apparent that reminds us that we are under someone else's rule, that we live in someone else's house. They gently guide us to acknowledge our interdependence with others and our need of them. But we resist the implication. After all, our parents have issues and we begin to latch on to what's wrong with them as a justification to ignore the truth that they reveal to us. Maybe another servant, another messenger of God is the institutional church. With all its imperfections, God's message comes through the institutional church. Now, maybe you have shown up to in town or another church that has challenged you deeply. It has challenged something that you hold to be sacrosanct. The truth in that context has come wrapped in conflict with others, in preaching, in hearing the word read or taught. It comes in the accountability of community. But we can always revert to the fact that there's something wrong with the church. There always is. There's something wrong with the leaders. There's something wrong with the pastor. And that gives us permission to sideline the truth that finds its way to us despite all of the imperfect features of the institutional church. We get messages from parents, from churches, and often just from life itself. Life is a perpetual messenger of God because it will never let us truly believe that we are the owner-operator of our lives. Life itself is a prophetic voice of anxiety and worry and even fear for those of us who see ourselves as owners of the world, but know that our, in our hearts that we are not. Through the years of our marriage, Katie and I have rented and we've owned various houses. And while I love owning a house, that is the, all the things that come with it, such as having a, a stable, predictable address, doing home renovation projects, not having to check in with anyone when we want to make uh, cosmetic or even structural changes to our house. 
But the what comes along with that is that my general level of stress concerning our home is much higher as an owner. Because I realize that in this 115-year-old house, if anything goes wrong, it's on me. Renters don't have the benefits of ownership, but they also don't have the stress of ownership. They're often not nearly as stressed out about their home. They don't worry about leaks or clogs or cracks in the ceiling, certainly not as much as someone who owns the house. If something breaks as a renter, what do you do? You call the owner. It's the owner's responsibility. It's their burden and their stress. But it's so hard to give up ownership over our worlds, to believe that we don't own our stuff, our intelligence, our time, our energy in the way that we would like to, but that we are stewards, that we are, that we are working someone else's soil like the tenants in this parable. And this is a very uncomfortable truth that we often try to avoid. It's difficult, it's painful to cede control of our lives over to someone else, particularly over to God, but it's also profoundly liberating. To be emancipated from having to control everything is the beginning of freedom. And really, it is the essential building block to a gospel-centered spirituality, to a life of joy, to Christianity itself. It is the ceding of our control and authority to Jesus instead. The gospel says, repent and believe the good news that you are not the owner, but you are a loved steward. It seems easy, but though we know that we're tenants, deep down we rebel against that idea. We don't like the idea of a God who won't let us be in control. And in talking about these things, we have zeroed in somewhat on the primary indictment of the Bible toward humanity. And it's not that we sin, that is that we misbehave or commit misdeeds, but that we, in our most basic identity, want to be gods over our own life and our possessions. We want to be in control. We want to be on the throne of our lives. So much that we'll harm others, we'll harm ourselves, we'll even push away from and reject God in pursuit of autonomy and ultimate authority. Isn't the question that the Sanhedrin posed to Jesus the same question that we ourselves are constantly asking of God, on whose authority? Friends, sin is not just the violation of the rules, but it's opposition to the ownership claims of God over our lives and everything that we interact with. And so becoming a Christian doesn't mean simply stopping one or exchanging one pattern of behavior for another. Coming to faith, trusting in Jesus, means exchanging one set of values for another. It, ex it means exchanging one future for another. 
And it means stepping down from the throne of our lives. Or in this passage, giving the deed over to, the fruits from the field back to its real owner. Now it's striking to me as we conclude that in this parable, those, there's this ominous warning about the vineyard owner coming eventually to kill all the bad tenants that the tenants never actually get their comeuppance. They're not actually punished in this parable. Now we should remember that this is a parable and that Jesus is not binding himself or God the Father literally to the owner's actions. Jesus is asking what what should, will happen to tenants who behave in such a possessive, insubordinate way. And he basically says that the vineyard owner is going to come back and bust some heads, so we better be watching. Verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. But I think the beauty, part of the beauty in this parable is what doesn't happen. That Jesus doesn't exercise his rights as king to murder those who stand in his way. On the cross, he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Even those that crucify him, he is merciful towards. And even in the confines of the parable itself, this punishment, this comeuppance, this murder doesn't happen. Instead, Jesus invokes the Psalm 118 image of the rejected stone and implies that it is him. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What we see, friends, is that God's ultimate response to this world's and our abusive treatment of him and his servants, of his son sent in mercy, it's not a full frontal assault of revenge, but it's his son coming and saying that he will lie down and die for everyone as the rejected stone. You see, it's not us, it's the rejected stone who is killed. And friends, though there is an ominous threat, there is grace to be had. The stone's strength, the stone's mass, the stone's density, it will not be used to break and to crush its enemies but it will be the cornerstone of a whole new reality, of a whole new order of things, of a kingdom that's not built on merit and compensation, of work and reward, but it is a kingdom built on grace. It is a kingdom built, in fact, on the very shoulders of Jesus himself, on God lying down for his enemies in love. Friends, as we come to eat of this table, we come to eat of the fruits of God's vineyard, that he has grown grace for us in his field, and he gives it over to us, that we get to eat upon the fruit of Jesus himself. And so as we prepare to come to the table to feed upon his grace, we come also confessing our faith, that we come believing that he is the cornerstone 
of all of life and of our faith that we hold together. So Christian, what do you believe? Jesus Christ is the hope of God's world. In his death, the justice of God is established. Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed. On the day of the resurrection, the tomb was empty. His disciples saw him. Death was defeated. New life had come. God's purpose for the world was sealed.